Welcome to Revel Revel the podcast. Today, I am talking to Laura Mavartian-Rim. I am Lauren Drabble, and this is my podcast. Laura is a dear friend. She's an incredible hostess. She is one of my biggest cheerleaders, and I was very excited that she said yes to being on the podcast. I've been lucky enough to know Laura for a long time. She is a self-proclaimed lover of talking about herself. So that is always a good thing in a guest. And we talk about her and her life and her coming to the United States, her rules of life, her philosophy. And uh, we talk about books, of course. I think that you'll really enjoy getting to know her. We'll learn a lot about yourself by listening to her approach to life. So here we go. Revel, revel. Hello. Hello. I am going to introduce you as my longtime friend. We'll have to figure out how long it's actually been. I am speaking with Laura Mavartian Rim. And I know that sometimes I hear it pronounced Mavartian. Which way do you prefer? A hard team, Mavartian. Mavartian. Well, I apologize. I should have known that. I've heard it both ways and I should have asked. So thank you for correcting me. So let's start off with how we know each other. So we met through a the book club that you started, the Salsa Book Club at Barnes & Noble. So that dates us right there. That um, Actually, Borders Bookstore. Sorry That's about right. that. Yep, and yeah. Dunwoody. So that, yep, that dates us. Um, and I think it was right around, right after I got married. So it must have been in like 97, 98. We've known each other for a long time. I know. Yeah. So let me give you a little background about starting that book group. And um we can talk to you, talk about what attracted you to it. So I moved to the Atlanta area from Tennessee, I believe the end of May to 97, no, 98. It was 98. I was living in Chambly and you will love this because I don't know if you ever took the public transportation in Atlanta, but back then to get from Chambly to Dunwoody, which would have been, gosh, 10, 15 minute drive or something like that took me probably two hours. Whoa. Yeah. Um, on the bus, I would catch one bus and then, and it would take me far away from where I was going just to connect, to get to the other bus that would take me to the store. Wow. Yeah. And I'd have to walk (laughs) too. I'd have to walk like a good mile as well. So Uh, But we only had one car at that time, so that's what we had to do. So I started working in the cafe there. As you know, I was a barista. Back then, Borders was awesome and had like this community outreach person and program and mission. And one of their goals was to have as many different diverse, was the keyword, book groups as possible. And so I went to that person, her name is Lane, and I went to her and I said, you know, here's what I'm thinking of. I want to do a American ethnic lit and world lit, heavy on the ethnicity, heavy on the internationality, heavy on the women's writers, stuff like that group. And I can't figure out when, what to call it. Cause I had been thinking about it for like, I don't know, at least a week by then. And she and I then worked on it for like two weeks. And then we just settled on the salsa book group because 
as we sort of justified it in our heads. It'd be tasty. It'd have lots of different uh, hot and spicy flavors. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't remember what else we said, but we were like, you know, riffing on the whole salsa thing. So anyway, that's why it was called the Salsa Book Group. It makes sense. Yeah. All right. So now tell me about like how you found out about it and what attracted you to it. So I was a regular customer at the Borders in uh, Dunwoody, a perimeter, and I saw the sign that you had on the counter. And um, I had tried book clubs before with friends, and we never really ended up talking about the book. We just ended up gossiping and having a good time and drinking wine, which I absolutely love. But I am a bit of a nerd. Um, I do want to actually discuss the books and, and the philosophy behind it and so forth. And so I thought, well, let me give it a try. Um, and um, I can't remember the first book. I think it was Iwelos. Uh, it was a Latino author. Um, and I did not like the book at all. And so I went to the meeting and this was going to be, I was testing out the book club, right? The book group. I thought if other people like it, I'm out of there because I cannot hang with people that would actually like this book. And um, there were, I think just like five of us there. And when the conversation started, I was just so impressed and pleasantly surprised by the degree of sophistication in the discussion so much more than I had expected and so much more than I had experienced outside of a college classroom and um, I was immediately hooked I was like wow these women are really sharp I'm learning a lot Um, uh, and then of course I got to meet you and I saw how you were leading the, the, the group you were really asking great questions, drawing people out, engaging people, calling people on on stuff that that um, may not relate to the topic or may not have really come from the book. Um, and so I was immediately hooked, and I think I was part of that book group for about fifteen years. Um, you you moved from Atlanta to Colorado, and we kept the book group going probably for another two to three years as best as we could. It was never the same when you left, Lauren, but we did try to keep it going. Uh, and I think maybe in some, I was part of the book group for about um, 18 years, I'm thinking. And um, I think about the books that we read, that we read all the time. They come up in so many um parts of my life. And um, many of us are still close. We still keep in touch on Facebook. We still communicate. We still are, are connected. Um, and of course, you and I continue to, to develop our friendship, which I'm really grateful for. So it was, um, yeah, one of the most enriching experiences that I've had as an adult. So very, very grateful for that. That's awesome. And I have really nothing to add about my memory of you joining. Um, but I don't remember, did you invite Vanessa? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and I think about the enrichment part that the people we brought into it is part of what made it enriching. You know, I feel like I am a better person for sure for knowing each and every one of you. And I just thank you for bringing her in. Did you bring anybody else in? I forget. I don't remember. Vanessa and I used to work together at Turner Broadcasting, and we would talk about books every now and then. So I told her about the book club, but I don't recall. I may, I may have mentioned it to other people, but I actually like the fact that most of the people that were in the book club, I, I didn't know outside of that space. Um, that's what I think made it so successful. 
I agree. I uh, I've never honestly really liked the book groups. They are all friends first, and then they decide to start a book club. I don't know. It's just not the same thing somehow. Yeah. And it's very intangible. Hard to say exactly why it doesn't work. For us, works so well. Is it's it's that thing of like talking to a stranger and you're telling them your whole life story because you're they're not going to run into the friend or your family member that that you're talking about. Um, that may have related to some aspect of whatever book we were reading. Um, and also, I think you have the freedom to be as nerdy and as, as you want to be without anyone kind of, um, you know, judging you or saying, why are you being so serious? It's a book club, you know, yeah. have another glass of wine. It's like, no, I want to talk about this issue. And that was never a problem in our book club. We could get as as book nerdy as we wanted to. I agree. So were you a book nerdy child? I read a lot um, when I, I mean, I remember just reading a lot in middle school primarily, um, always just reading a lot, um, waking up Saturday mornings and staying in bed to like, you know, one o'clock reading books, um, reading Reader's Digest from cover to cover. <laughs> I think it slowed down a little bit in, in high school and then I picked it back up in college. Um, but then I think as an adult, I, I yearned that that, you know, reading discipline. Um, but yeah, I've always enjoyed books. Again, we didn't have access to a lot of books when I grew up in Mexico. Um, I remember that one time for Three Kings Day, my parents got us a, like um, a series of books. I think there were three books in that series and it was children's stories. And we would read, uh, you know, our parents would read that over and over to us. Um, and that was kind of the only books I remember having as a child. We didn't have a library that we would go to. There were no bookstores that I ever remember going into wow. um, in my childhood. Yeah, books in, in Mexico are pretty, they're, they're, they're not abundant. You don't walk into Barnes and Nobles and Borders hmm. like you do here. Um, and, the, and the school I went to definitely did, did not have a library. And what part of Mexico was this? Mexico City, okay. a, sub, a suburb of Mexico City. So uh, I just cannot picture you laying in bed reading until 1 p.m. You were just such a seize the day type of person. Well, I, I am a morning riser. I do get up early, and um, but I would, again, in that middle school, early high school years, um, I was excited about what I was reading. Um, and you know, like many of us, um, sometimes you, you pick up a book and you just read it straight through, and you can't put it down. Um, and I had the I had the freedom to do that, so I did. And I also can't imagine your family letting you. Like, what were they doing when you were in bed reading um, all morning? You know, if this was, if it was the summer, we would, we would work. We would always be working. But if there wasn't anything going on, our parents were very, very relaxed about letting us do what, whatever we were doing as long as we weren't getting in trouble. Hmm. That was a very relaxed household. So who, who was little Laura Mavartian? How is she different or maybe the same as the adult that I know? You know, I think I, I've thought about this every now and then, and and um, because I also reflect on my kids, who they were when they were little and who they are now, and I'm like, wow, they're the same. I mean, my daughter Claudia has the same attitude she had when she was three, and now she's 16, and she she has the same attitude. Um, I think I was the same way. I was a very strong-willed child that was very curious, and that couldn't put up with people who I thought were just not trying hard enough or not doing the right thing. Um, and that's still who I am today. Um, 
so, but I, of course it manifested in, in different ways. And also one thing I, re, I recall about my childhood is always having this, I, I so admired intellectuals and um, people with knowledge. And I always aspired to be one of those. Um, I remember, again, with a few books that we had sitting in the front stoop of my, of, of our condo building in Mexico when I was maybe, you know, five, um, I couldn't read a, a big book like that. And I was sitting in the front stoops pretending that I was reading, pretending that I was this, you know, smart intellectual person. Of course, I had the book upside down. Somebody came up and said, you may want to flip that around. But it was the idea, you know, the idea that I wanted people to think that I was smart and that I was pursuing knowledge. Like I've always been attracted to that, which is one of the reasons why I love hanging out with you and Simon, because you guys are just full of knowledge and interesting <laughs> knowledge and interesting perspectives. And I am addicted to that. I that's what feeds me. That's what energizes me is people who, who have that knowledge. So that was definitely a, a part of my childhood is um, learning as much as possible, you know, watching the Gandhi movies, reading, like, I remember watching Gandhi in, in middle school and just bawling and then um, trying to get an encyclopedia, reading the paper, just trying to get information. Of course, back then we didn't have the internet. So just trying to get information was, was, a pursuit of mine since, since I can remember. Um, so, but in my attitude, again, it's uh, strong willed and holding people accountable. I, I'm a, I'm a screamer and a yeller. Like if I'm, I'm going to get in somebody's face if I don't think they're doing the right, the right thing. And I've been doing that since I was a kid. And was that encouraged? Was that like, Hey, Laura, tone it down. You're not making any friends here kind of reaction ever. It depended on it, I mean, I think if I was standing up for other people, then of course it was encouraged. If you were on the other end of me holding you accountable, then yeah, no, you weren't very happy. But um, I think that people felt that I that I had a degree of courage and of, of just speaking out to people. And I would speak up on, you know, we were a migrant family who moved to a small town in, uh, in Minnesota. And everyone welcomed us very graciously um we were we, we felt very very loved in st james but there are circumstances and even and sometimes outside of our hometown where we weren't treated very nicely and i was not afraid to to speak up and you know stand up for my family or stand up for my parents um and i just and it just made me feel better if, if i spoke up and said something um and did you see that behavior modeled in by someone that you were emulating oh, or was it just your prob gut? Um, probably my dad. I mean, my dad is, I think, very, very outspoken, very, very, uh, uh, you know, when he gets upset, he'll just go ahead and, and, and react. Um, when I was younger, my dad did, uh, he hit a police officer in Mexico City and he was in jail for like three days um, because the, the police officer was, was just bullying him and badgering him and he was like no like he just felt that wasn't appropriate and I remember that as a child that my dad like hit a police officer and he had to go to jail for three days um how old were I, you when that happened I I think I was around six um six or seven something something like that but but I I mean obviously that's a big deal if your father is getting hauled off to jail um and um yeah, but I kind of you know I kind of respect that yeah, it's not like he was um, money laundering. He was doing civil mm -hmm. disobedience. 
there's a big right. difference, you know? Right. Yeah. He, at least, at least the way my dad tells it anyway, he and his, he and his uh, cousin were getting um, harassed by a, a police officer. And it's not difficult to imagine that a, that a police officer in Mexico city is going to be harass, harassing, you know, people. So yeah, I believe my dad on this one. Uh, okay. So going back to the childhood thing, and you said you were a migrant family to St. James, Minnesota, would you consider your family a dreamer family? Well, I guess that's what you would call us. Well, what do you mean by that? I, and I think that that's what I was sort of getting at. Like, um, I don't know if anyone has ever really defined who the dreamers are, but basically the people who have immigrated here legally or illegally, maybe either, for a better life. And well, yeah, so normally when people talk about the dreamers, they're talking about the youth that were brought here um, without it being their decision, right? If you were brought to the United States under the age of 16 um, and you came here undocumented, then that's what they call the, the, the dreamers. Now, sometimes, um, and I came here before, and then the dreamers are then the ones that are um, um, qualified for DACA right? Because they're saying, hey, you came here through no fault of your own. Um, so if that concept existed when we came to the U.S., which was back in 1976, then yes, I and my sisters um, would be dreamers because I was um, eight years old when I came to the U.S. My sister was 11 and my um, youngest sister, was, my other sister was three years old. Um, but, you know, we do want to say that the original dreamers were our parents who made the decision to, to leave their home, their homeland and come to the U.S. So we kind of want to change the narrative a little bit to say that they were the original dreamers and then we were here to, to kind of fulfill their dream. I like that. So how did your parents broach the subject of, we're moving? So my dad um, had a great job in Mexico City who worked at a candy factory, Chiclets. So if you've seen the little... Yeah. He worked there. He would bring these awesome um, mint balls home and um, like all sorts of fun candy home from the factory. Uh, but then the factory closed, um, or I think they were moving to a different part of the state, uh, to a different part of the country. Um, he got a severance package and he started a, a business. He started a, a dairy store um, and that, that failed after about a year. And so then my dad um, was not able to get a, another job and we were running out of money, so he decided to go to the U.S. where my uncle um, was working in the chicken factories in St. James, Minnesota. So my uncle said, you know, coming up here, there's work. So my dad went on his own first. He wanted to check things out. Um, he was there for a year, and then um, he came back. Um, he came back on Christmas of 1975 to basically tell us we're all heading, we're all going to the U.S., and um, I was super excited. I was not scared. I was not sad. I was excited um, because everything we heard about the U.S. was just positive and, um, and you know, you just envisioned this haven. Um, and so we left um, in February and we arrived in Minnesota right around February 12th of 1976. Smack in the middle of the winter. I went from one of the largest cities in the world uh, to a small town of about 4,000, 4,200 people um, smack in the middle of the winter. It was quite an experience. And were you warned about the cold? Yes, we knew. <laughs> we were stupid. Well, maybe not 
the degree to which it was going to be cold. I don't think anybody really can explain how cold Minnesota can be. We were more excited about the snow. Um, and there was plenty of it. Um, and the culture around snow was just fascinating. So it was a super fun place to grow up. After Once we got used to the, the cold, it was super fun. It wasn't scary crossing the border on eventful? Well, um, we were fortunate that we were able to fly. Um, my dad, um, again, with he worked and saved enough money to buy airfare for us. And um, so that was our first plane trip. And it was exciting. It was fun. Um, my sister and I had matching coats. A friend of the family gave us $10 worth of quarters in a, in a roll uh, that we spent at the arcade at the Dallas oh, airport. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, it was super fun. I mean, the only thing that was scary was the fact that we, we were told to tell the immigration officers that we were going to Disney World. Um, that that was the purpose of our trip, that we were going to Disney World. And so we, even though we knew we weren't going, but that was the story, that that's why we were going to the U.S. Um, and so, yeah, I remember being nervous and scared that we couldn't screw it up. Um, but that only, that moment only lasted for a short period of time. And then after that, it was just fun to be on your first, you know, plane ride. We had a layover in Dallas and then flew, flew to Minneapolis from there. To, to see the airports of the U.S. and the arcades and, and the snow and, and all of it was just was just a fun experience. So yesterday in our little prep for this, you know, you talked about how you don't see your story or the world through the lens of fate or coincidence or synchronicity or any of that, you know, and, and I said, you can call it whatever label you want. And so let's start with that. What label would you even feel comfortable using since you don't see the world that way? Well, I guess, oh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I don't necessarily put a lot of weight on coincidences. Have I experienced them? Yes, but I think that they can be explained. You know, the world is just a lot smaller than we realize. Um, or, you know, all of us live in within a certain group of people within our class, within our norms. And so yes, coincidences are going to happen. So I don't, I don't get too worked up about those when they, when they do occur. Um, so I'm not sure how to answer your, your question. Um, I mean, I'm a, I, I just don't look for them. I don't use that as, as a guide in any way for, for how I live or my values or what I, what I do. So I'm not really sure how to answer that question, Lauren. So that's okay. Maybe prompt me a little bit more. And well, I kind of feel like as we talk about it, little things might reveal themselves. So whatever, we'll see what happens by the end. So yesterday you were explaining that you are very much person of conflicting labels. You know, like you said that. In fact, I don't want to even misquote you. Just go ahead and try to say that again about that. I'm this, but I'm not that. Oh, well, I think sometimes I'm, I'm just kind of full of contradictions, right? Like, I don't, I don't believe, uh, my, my kids were going to YMCA camp and part of their, their motto was honesty. And I was like, no, I don't believe in honesty. I don't think we should be teaching kids that. I mean, we lie all the time as adults and we have to, to get along in this world and to not hurt other people. So how about just being upfront with kids and, and learning when and how, um, to be honest, is more appropriate. So I will, and, and just for a fact, I will just tell people, yeah, I don't believe in honesty. And that, of course, you know, catches them off guard. But even though I, I don't believe in honesty, I am one of the most honest people you will ever meet. Because 
I think it's if I respect you as a friend, um, as if I care about you, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't believe in this passive aggressive or beating around the bush type of, I just think it's more, it's more productive. It's more meaningful. I want honest conversations in that. That's actually why I don't believe in honesty because why I don't believe in saying be honest because we're not always honest. We're, manners, manners are about not being honest. Manners are about saying you like the food when you don't. Manners are about how, saying hello, how are you when you don't really care. You know, so how do we not send mixed mes messages to kids? So, you know, that's kind of one of those things. I'm also, I'm, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in a higher power. Um, yet I'm one of the most spiritual people. And I know more about religion than most people who believe in God, um, because I was just fascinated by, by the topic. So, um, you know, I can tell people, yeah, I'm an atheist, but yes, but yet I know more about maybe the, the Bible and different religions and so forth, because I took the time to, um, to look into this. I mean, the, my, me saying that I'm an atheist, that is intentional. That is, I chose that, that path. Um, and maybe the better way to describe me is, is that I'm a humanist. I believe more in, in human beings actually having control of their life and impacting their life. Um, also, I think that, you know, I'm not the nicest person on the micro level, but at the macro level, I just feel that I go all out to do what I can for, for communities. So, um, yeah, I mean, when I look at, at, at who I am, and um, I, I think that there are what some people would look at contradictions. To go back just to pick up on one of those, because there's a lot there to pick apart, but I'm going to focus on that I know that you used to go, maybe still do, to a Unitarian Universalist church. Mm -hmm. right. So did you tell people there that you're an atheist? Oh, yeah. There's, that's why you go there. <laughs> there's so many of us there. Um, and yeah, we have a humanist group. Um, most people, if, if you're going to the Unitarian congregation, at least the one in Atlanta, if you believe that Jesus was the son of God, you're not going to feel very comfortable there. What about the whole believing in something? Like, wouldn't most people there say that they're more agnostic than atheist? No. Uh, no? Most okay. Unitarians believe in, I mean, Unitarians, some Unitarians believe in a higher power. That may be God with a, with a capital G or just this, you know, maybe they're, they're Buddhists. They're, um, but Unitarians believe in seven principles. Um, so there is a core set of beliefs, but there's, there's no dogma. Nothing is around a, a higher power. It is about the interdependency web of life, which maybe gets into your coincidence a little bit, right? Interdependency, how our actions can impact the, the rest of the world. Um, and I'm, I, I, those seven principles that Unitarians believe in, I just, I just think they're, they're beautiful and they're core. And I, and I, and they, they, I think they would work with just about every or they should work, I think, with, with every religion. Um, one of the core principles is that uh, we value, you know, the inherent worth and dignity of all people. So we're very open, gay, gay people, bisexual, trans, you name it, you are welcomed in our congregation. We're not about excluding individuals, except maybe excluding those who exclude others. Um, then you're not going to feel very comfortable. Right. Okay. So when you 
so are you still going to that church or we have not attended recently there's been a lot of transition in our congregation our our building was sold they're in a temporary space our minister um, moved we have another minister so there's just a lot of transition also our kids finished their um what most people think of as confirmation they finished their um coming of age program and so that was a good time to just kind of take a little break um especially with with every all the other transition that was happening at our congregation but i'm still very much i still think of myself as a unitarian and very much support um what unitarians are, are all about gotcha okay so that said when you were going or now in your own studies or whatever you want to call it do you ever feel like the universe is trying to tell you something teach you something all the time uh i, I mean i think uh, to me if I can go back to kind of the spirituality part, to me, spirituality is about knowledge. It's introspection. It's learning about yourself. You know, it's learning about me. Why do I do what I do in the manner in which I do it? Or why don't I do what I should be doing? Um, so, yeah, I think it is about learning as much as possible about other people and other human beings and how human beings react and suffer and don't, and about, um, and, and learning about myself, it's introspection. Um, so, yeah, the universe is always teaching me things or, or identifying things that I need to learn about <laughs> that I don't understand that confuse me. Um, so it is, I think to me, it is spirituality and learning from the universe is is that is asking why 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 you know to many levels so that you can get to a core understanding as much as we can about human behavior yeah you know i think that maybe you resist some labels that other people use like fate coincidence synchronicity whatever but when most people tell stories about what they're learning, especially if it's something that is just, they're kind of kicking and screaming and dragging their feet. And the universe is like, I am going to keep hitting you over the head with this example or this person or, you know, whatever. So the universe is bringing all of these things together so that you have to fricking learn this thing, or at least start tackling it. That a lot of people would call that those words, fate, god synchronicity coincidence whatever you want to call it so it just sounds like that you're open to that you've experienced that you acknowledge it but you don't really want to label that as fate or coincidence or whatever well you know when i hear you say that i tend to think of people who talk about suffering they've had in their lives and how that taught them things um, how that's the universe sending you a message, making you grow. And when I think about my life, I feel I've been very fortunate. I haven't suffered or I don't look at it as suffering. Maybe other people would have thought, oh, wait, you, you had to live as an undocumented person for 10 years. Um, yeah, we lived in fear, but I didn't think of that as suffering. I don't look, I think that type, the way that I hear you describe that is about people is usually people who are just are thrown many, many challenges their, their way, or at least look at life as challenges. Um, I guess I could think of, of many aspects of our life, you know, 
as being challenged, but I always thought of them as, as that we were fortunate. We were fortunate that we had a $400 car that would only break down, you know, once a month, instead of thinking, oh my God, we had a $400 car that would, you know, I think maybe it's perspective. I don't think of, I, I tend to think, wow, we were really fortunate instead of, oh my God, the world keeps hitting me with all these things and, and it's forcing me to really uh, grow up and mature. Um, yeah, I like, and, and I've just been fortunate not to have any significant knock on wood, significant issues in my life that have caused suffering. Well, I um, think you're totally right that it is perspective and you definitely sound like you have, as they say, the attitude of gratitude. But I think it goes beyond that in that your first thought was about suffering. And that's an interesting label because I, when I think, like if I say this theme keeps coming up, right? It could be patience, it could be kindness, it could be generosity, whatever. I don't generally think of, oh, I have to be patient with this person because they're just freaking annoying. And that's my suffering through them. <laughs> I don't think of it that way. I think of it as, oh, why can't I be more patient with that person, you know, or whatever. And so I'm just using that as an example, obviously, but I don't think of the challenge of me having to learn, not everything, but most things in life as suffering. But I do think of it as opportunities. Well, maybe, I mean, suffering is an extreme, right? That, that is, but, but I think we are forced to grow when things aren't going our way. Like if that person is annoying you and then now you have to practice patience, yeah. right? It's, I tend to, I guess, I kind of remove a lot of the noise in my life. If, if I feel that people aren't good for me or annoy, I just, I move on. I will, I, um, I think I have to find different ways of growing than thinking I've, I've, I've been fortunate where I can say, I don't like this job. I can leave or I'm not comfortable here. I'm not comfortable with this person. I can leave. I've had choices. I haven't had to put up with a lot of discomfort in my life. Or I've been fortunate to be around people that have the wherewithal that we can work through that discomfort. And then it's not a constant theme. I, I, I think this is kind of where I'm, I'm going. So I find other ways to grow. And that's always just introspection, introspection, you know, having choices in my life. I think that's the number one thing, you know, what makes me happy is having choices. If I don't want to be married anymore, well, I can leave if I want. If I don't want to live in Atlanta, I can leave if I want. If I don't want this job, I can leave if I want. And so that just reduces the number of situations I have to work through. So maybe it's not a good thing that I have choices, right? Maybe if I had to actually work through some more difficult things, um, I would grow more as an individual. But because I've had the luxury of if that person is annoying me and I don't think they're adding any value to my life, I don't need to learn patience with that person. Just move on. Like, why do I have to be patient with somebody who's annoying me and not adding anything? I just move on. Now, do I have to have patience with my kids? Yes. Do I have to learn to be a better listener? Yes. That's one of the biggest things I have to learn is how to be a better listener. Um, so I don't know if, yeah. So there you go. Some thoughts on that. How has spirituality changed over time in your life? Oh my God, a lot. I will just understanding my definition of spirituality. You know, I just mentioned that I think spirituality is learning as much about yourself and human nature as possible, being introspective. 
but I think that when I was younger, spirituality was associated with religion. And um, I grew up, my parents were Catholic, um, but we were cultural Catholic, not so much practicing Catholic. And when we came to the U.S., the Baptist church in our, in our town would pick up all the migrant kids and they would take us to their church and to Sunday school and they would, you know, get us to accept Jesus into our hearts and be reborn. And I totally bought into that. I mean, from third grade to about sixth grade, I was a complete Baptist. I mean, I, they would take me, um, they would take me around the community to translate um, and to be, you know, to go on missionary trips, if you will, around town to convert people and to get them to accept Jesus into their heart. And I totally bought it. Um, up until a, a certain point. And then I was like, uh, yeah, no, this is a bunch of BS. This is that. And that's one of the times that I actually told somebody off when they came to pick me up again. And I was like, no, it's kind of like I saw the light. And well, and the turning point was they showed us a video when I was around 11 of what hell was like. And I could not believe that they were showing 11 year olds, 12 year olds, this video of a teenager who had committed suicide was in hell, a, a young woman who had an abortion, you know, all of this. And I just thought, this is just wrong. This is wrong. This is bad. These people are crazy. Like it, I just turned on them like that. And so when they came to pick me up, um, again, I just said, no, this is wrong. You're crazy. Like, no, I don't want any part of this anymore. And so I stopped being a Baptist, but I do, um, they, they were lovely people. The people at the church were lovely and they really cared about us. Um, and I learned a lot about the Bible um, because in, in the Catholic, going to Aryan Catholic um, church, they don't teach you anything about the Bible. They teach you the sacraments and they teach you, you know, they teach you their rules, but they don't really talk about the Bible. So I'm really grateful for that experience, but I got the hell out of there as soon as I just, you know, felt like this is just wrong. Um, and then I um, started going to the Catholic church and attended REM Wednesdays. We would go to church on the weekends. Um, I attended all the classes and it was time for me to get confirmed. And I just thought, no, I'm not getting confirmed. I've been paying attention and I don't like the way you treat women. I don't like, you know, this no divorce policy hurts women this more than men and I was just like in their face like no I've actually been paying attention I don't want any part of this so I left the Catholic Church um I still thought I believed in Jesus and God uh, but then I went to college and I took a class on on Judaism and when the professor was talking I thought wow wait we really are supposed to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that he was crucified I was like no I don't believe that I always thought that was just a story like people really believe this happened and then from there I was like no I don't believe I don't believe Jesus was the son of God and that was really hard for my parents at first that I was rejecting Catholicism but uh, but anyway get, getting to your question of spiritual how has it changed I was looking towards these institutions these organizations to help me with spirituality but but they weren't, or maybe they did because I saw, I learned a lot, right? I learned a lot from, from attending the Baptist church. I learned a lot from participating and engaging and listening to my Catholic, participating in RE in, in the Catholic church. Um, and then I pursued learning more about religion in college. And so, um, you know, one of the papers I wrote was the origins of Christianity and um, in and, and the origins also, and that's when you learn, it's like, oh, wait, going back before Christianity, it's like, oh, Abraham create, created this monotheism idea and, and said that there was one God, and then he told his family, so blah, 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 you know, and then 
they told others, I was like, yeah, no, I don't believe that either. So I definitely spent time studying this to the degree that I felt I needed. I'm no expert by any means, but I definitely took the time to, to write papers and, and do research. And from that, I was like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't believe any of this. And I was very comfortable about that. But I did feel lost. If you don't believe any of that, and all you know are like Baptist church, Catholic church, where else do you go? Where do you go for that spirituality? Not until a friend told me about the Unitarian congregation, where she said, hey, you should check that out. I think that may be a good, good place for you. And the first time I went um, was actually when I was pregnant with my son. I was looking for a spiritual home. I want. I liked growing up in a church environment. I like going on the weekends and and the community aspect of it, and the in the music and in the traditions. And I missed that. But I was not going to participate in any church that was going to hijack my brain. I was not. You know, I didn't miss it that much. So um, I went to the Unitarian congregation and the first service I heard just blew my mind. I was like, wow, I can't believe a congregation like this really exists, that you can have a truly intellectual, spiritual experience without having to give up or compromise on your, on your beliefs. And for, so just being associated with the Unitarian congregation really helped me to define this new way of, of the way I look at spirituality, that it really is about again, understanding who you are to become a better person, right? That's why you spend time with introspection, introspective questions and thought is, how can I become a better person? How can I leave this world a better place? And the Unitarian congregation, I think, was, was a perfect fit for me to develop my spirituality in that way. So do you remember that first service, what they were talking about, what they were doing that blew your mind? Yeah, I don't remember the specifics of it, but I remember definitely getting a high off of it. I had never heard anyone in a real quote unquote religious setting speak that way. Um, I wish I, I did remember, but I, I don't remember the specifics. Well, who knows? Maybe like at 2 a.m. you'll wake up and go, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> so... Let's talk about community and what community means to you and that interconnectedness maybe between your different pockets of community because, and you might want to review for the listeners, you have many pockets. Just off the top of my head, you've got the Latino community, you've got politics, of course they overlap, you've got books, you've got church, you've got past jobs, you've got your neighborhood, you've got your kids peers and their parents and I'm sure I'm missing a bunch yeah I but what about the communities help me out in that again yeah like if you just want to talk about what community means to you and how if they overlap how they overlap at all community is very important to me I I need my community to fulfilled and and just I'm not a loner I need to be a part of of something and I love to be a part of many different communities because they fulfill different parts of who I am there's not one person or one community that can that can give me everything I need. And because I have a lot of different interests, I, I then seek out a lot of different communities. And I find it engaging um, and interesting on, on, on all fronts. So yeah, you know, the parents at my kids' school, um, the, the parents that, that we became very close to have, have been amazing friends and, and have guided me and given me guidance and have pulled me into more community. So um, two of my friends from the Atlanta International School really pulled me into leadership roles in the um, Latino community um, in terms of um, community work. 
and um, supporting business women, um, being on on boards and committees, they really pulled me into into that. And I've always been interested in politics. Um, I feel that it is our responsibility as citizens to engage and contribute. My degree at, at the University of Michigan was in public policy, so I've always had that that interest. And so I feel that you shouldn't ask, what can a candidate do for me? But the question is, what can I do for my candidate? It's our responsibility to find the candidate for us. And then I feel it's our responsibility to help them get elected. And so I've had that philosophy for, for a while, which is exhausting because then you feel guilty when you're not helping your city council person, your state representative, your state senator, your, you know, at all levels, all levels of, um, of, of politics. And then within that, you obviously have the Latino representation, which I've been very involved in. Um, how do we get Latinos to be more civically engaged? Um, because obviously that's, that's better for, for our community. So I think in terms of, I mean, I have so many different, I think like many of us, right? Many of us have, have many different interests. We have a lot of different communities and we can easily go from one community to the other, right? We, we can easily go from, and, and we're fulfilling different parts of our lives. I've, I've, I'm a runner, I've, I've run four marathons. So there's the, the running community there um, as well. And we love to travel. So then there's the people who travel, like, you know, it's so fun to talk to you and, and Simon about your travel experiences. So it is just about seeking out what, what um, again, knowledge and growth and contributing. Um, and I guess that's the way I kind of look at my communities, if that makes sense. The other point I want to make about communities is that for me, I don't, I, and I think you do this, Lauren, um, we don't just ignore people around us. We're very aware of what's happening around us because they're part of our community. If you are at a bookstore and there's somebody sitting next to you, you're aware of what they're doing and, and we're not shy about talking to them or asking them questions. Like, and, and I think that creates community. When you acknowledge the person sitting next to you on the bus, on the subway, at the store, at the restaurant, when you acknowledge them, you are creating community. You're saying, hey, I see you. And with that comes, with, with that kind of view, you can get engaged in a lot of different scenarios and interesting things. And I have um, been engaged in a lot of different scenarios and interesting things because I do see everyone around me as being part of my community. So, and I can tell you lots of stories about, about that, but I think that is a philosophy that you look at everyone around you as not strangers or not, but, but truly as part of your community. Uh, why don't you pick at least one really poignant one to you about what story comes to mind? Oh, I'm gonna have to tell you two. I, okay. All right. It's at so, least one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. Um, so I, we were at a restaurant in um, by the Chesapeake Bay Bridge in Maryland, and there was a Muslim family. This was about three years ago, two, three years ago. There was a Muslim family sitting next to us, and and a white family sitting next to us. There were only three families out on the out on the deck, and it was a beautiful, beautiful evening, beautiful sunset with the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, just gorgeous. And um, I see this white man harassing these um, young teenage Muslim boys, and he he was harassing them. He was just he bumped into them three times and said, "You you Muslim motherfuckers," you know. And then the the Muslim men came to pull the teenagers away, 
And then everyone kind of, so there's some commotion, but everyone settled down. And of course, I'm like, oh, hell no, I can't let this guy get away with it. So I go up to the Muslim family. Again, they're part of my community. I'm not just going to ignore them. I go up to them. I ask them what happened. They tell me. I go to the manager and I said, you need to call the police because you can't allow people like this in your restaurant. They call the police. The, the gentleman, if I can call him a gentleman, the, um, the white male who had harassed the Muslim family, he and his family were leaving. So I followed them to the parking lot, keeping my distance. I never, I never approached them. I, I try to be smart about this. And I took a picture of the license plate of their car as they were leaving. The police came in, um, took my statement, took the family statement. And, um, you know, um, I, I showed them the license plate um, and they went to his house and picked him up and hauled him in and charged him with um, disorderly conduct, disturbing the peace and second degree assault. And nice. Um, nice. he ended up getting um, charged like um, the state's attorney general, you know, what have they called me to see if I would testify. Of course I said I would, but they took my statement. I didn't have to actually fly in. Um, and he got uh, 12 hours of community service and had to uh, pay $1,200, $1,200 fee. But the point is that he was held accountable for his actions. And that was, um, I'm, I'm very proud of that incident. Um, and and uh, because I, I saw them as part of my community and I engaged and acted on it. Um, and the woman wrote on Facebook, oh, this nice lady helped us. The Muslim, one of the Muslim women wrote. And I'm like, I'm no nice lady. Nice ladies don't do that. You know, they just... They just sit back and don't, don't get involved in conflict. I was like, no, you know, I think that's another contradiction. I'm, I'm like, I'm not nice and I'm proud of not being nice. You got to get in people's faces to make, to change things in the world. So um, that's one example, um, one meaningful example. Um, another example was I was leaving work um, and it was raining and I saw this woman sitting on the sidewalk, just bawling, just crying. And I couldn't ignore her. How can you ignore a, a, what some people would consider a stranger? So I pulled over and she immediately got into my car. I didn't even have to ask or say anything. And she said um, her ankle was hurt. Um, I offered to take her to uh, urgent care. Um, it turns out she was actually um, a bit intoxicated, but um, she still was a person who needed help. Now, in this case, um, it was a bit late for me to try to keep my distance because she had gotten in my car, but I was on the phone with my husband and, and I, I kept him up to date on kind of what was going on. I offered again to take her to a doctor. Um, she just wanted to be taken home, which I, I did. And in the process of taking her home, she just told me her life story. Um, she had been homeless. She you know, just, just all of these life events that, that were not, um, that were, that were just not what any of us hoped for. Um, and, um, in the midst of that, she asked me to call her mother. I dialed the number, but, um, there was no answer. And so I, I ended up dropping her off, um, at a townhome and someone did let her in. Um, if she, if she wasn't going to be let in, I was going to call the police to just check in on her. I felt like I had done my job and I was going to hand it over. But um, so I felt that I had done a good deed, right, by helping this woman, getting her to a safe place. Um, and then as I was driving home, I get a call from the number that we had dialed, thinking that that was her mother. And the person who calls me is an older gentleman um, saying, hey, I, I got a call from this number. I, I missed it. And I said, well, do you know so-and-so? And he said, no, I don't know her. But then we started talking because clearly this older gentleman needed somebody to talk to. And he started telling me how he had just come, in, come back from... Um, his chemotherapy because he has cancer. And 
I was like, well, I have 20 minute, a 20 minute ride to get home. I have time to talk to this older gentleman, so why not? And I just sat and kept him company and just listened. And when I got home, I, you know, I, I said goodbye to, to the older gentleman. I wished him well. And I just sat in my driveway going, what the hell just happened in these last, like this last hour? I pick up a woman who like, you know, she tells me her entire story crying in my car. And then I'm talking to a stranger who is dealing with um, cancer and just needed somebody to talk to. But I think those are examples of us opening ourselves up to others and not seeing them as strangers. And I have tons of stories like that, of just, if you're, if you're aware, if you're paying attention, you're going to engage with other people and hopefully help them. Well, 100% agreed. And uh, I could keep you here all day and we could talk about all this stuff, but I just want to let you know, I was jotting down a couple of things while you were, even before you were telling the stories. And I wrote down uh, knowledge, growth, and contributing as the themes that sort of unify community for you. And then um, I wrote down, hey, I see you, yeah. as maybe the title of this episode. And then I laughed inside and I was holding it in while you were talking, because it was a serious story you were telling. And I also wrote down, nice ladies don't do that. Yeah, I'm not a <laughs> as, a, <laughs> as an alternative to the, hey, I see you. But they're both as a contradiction, it's perfect for you. It's, hey, I see you. I'm mm -hmm. open. I care. I'm observant. I'm curious. And it's the whole, you know, nice ladies that finish last. Mm -hmm. The What's the one? Well-behaved women Perfect. rarely make right. history, you know? Exactly. That's exactly. These, yeah. That's these are you. Right. Yeah. Right. These are definitely you. Yep. Um, well, I strive to that anyway. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's funny because you're like, I'm not a nice lady. And in general, I think that I'm not a nice lady either. And yet, if you put our things on paper, it would have to definitely be in the good person oh, yeah. well, column, I, for I, sure. I think because nice ladies aren't supposed to make people uncomfortable. And I don't shy away from making people uncomfortable if that needs to, to be done. I, I think that's, that's what I attribute about nice ladies. They, they're, they're always going to make everyone feel welcomed and comfortable but if you're an asshole I'm not going to make you feel welcomed and comfortable right 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 and yeah there's something to be said for being pleasant to everyone and then there's something to be said not letting the jerks feel comfortable one thing that's going to actually warm your heart is that every episode I'm going to on the website show books we talked about if anything came up mm -hmm. as well as books that we recommend um, because I find that when you're talking to someone, especially someone who's open and engaged and interesting, you're going to think of a book that you have read that sounds like them or they should read or, you know, whatever. And so I thought, oh, that's going to happen naturally when we talk because hello. And I haven't thought of one. Mm -hmm. um, how about you? Have you thought of any? Specific that I think of that, that define me? Um, or that's just, just have kind of come up into your mind, popped up into your consciousness as we've been talking? Well, no, I mean, not necessarily. There were so many books we read that apply. I, it would be difficult to find, to just find one. You know, I really loved, I think we read, was it The Selection? The the one about 9-11 in the, um, or The Submission? Was it the 9-11 where they had to submit for, um, 
the memorial that was going to be built for 9-11 in New York. Wow, I don't remember that one at all. That was what, 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 what made you think of that one? Because it's about courage. It's about standing up for people and having courage. Um, and that's what I, 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 I think I have a hero complex, which is part of why I, I try to see people. I have a hero complex. I want to, to help and be seen as helpful. And when I think of this book, I think it's called The Submission. I think about how so many people had the opportunity to show courage throughout in so many, many, many ways. Um, and the writer just did an amazing job of, of showing the plight of a lot of the characters and, and the, the difficult decisions they had to make. And so I, yeah, I think about, I think books that what I strive for is having courage, micro courage and big courage to, to make difficult decisions and to, to really live the way you're supposed, you wanna live, that takes courage. So I think of that, that's one book that came to mind. Well, I'll have to find that again because I don't remember it. You know, some books, of course, stay with you more than others. But normally I would at least say, yeah, I know that title. Mm-hmm. Nothing sounds right. But that does sound like you for sure. And I will try to find it. But, you know, I think the number one reason why no book came to mind as we've been talking is you blew me away when you were talking about the guy who, you know, you just happened to call you back and he was just finished his chemo or going through chemo and you spent time talking to him. I'm thinking about how many people are out there right now, stuck at home, Mm -hmm. um, isolated with no one to talk to. And gosh, it's hard enough sometimes to even keep up with your family and friends. And sometimes it can feel like just too much to try to reach out to everybody who may need it. And then I think, wow, you know, if my phone normally now, if there's a number that comes in that's unknown, I don't answer it. Maybe I should. Maybe I should just see who the universe brings to me right now that Mm -hmm. maybe needs someone to talk to. Well, and I think there's also something very specific, very cathartic about speaking to strangers because you don't have to be guarded. There's no agenda. Right. And I think there's, I wish we would just, you know, have conversations with strangers. Um, I've often thought about having elderly women who are at home be available to talk to all the people that are driving home during rush hour. And they can just tell them about their day instead of, you know, going home and telling your spouse who doesn't necessarily want to hear it again, because you've said that story 20 million times. But uh, you know, yeah. Karen at work is still annoying and yeah, you're still or, learning patience. <laughs> or, or it's another story about how I was a Karen at work, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, the self-righteous, damn it, they're not doing it, you know, but uh-huh. I just often think about all these lonely elderly people who I, you know, I romanticize them and think that they would be good listeners. And then all the other people who are hustling and bustling, who, who need to download and to, who need to be heard. And so, yeah, I've, I've, I've wanted to start something like that, where you could just dial a grandma and, and just talk to grandma who's not going to judge you as you're, as you're driving home from work. Um, I think that's awesome. I think you should do it. Yeah, when it's on my list. <laughs> well, I, I think it's fantastic. I mean, you know, when I was active in the shelter world, I was trying to navigate the legalities of bringing in animals to nursing homes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's tough. But anyway, because 
I do have that, for lack of a better word, guilt about them being all alone and having no one to talk to. And they have such great stories if we just shut up and listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the animals, everybody knows how much, you know, how much we get out of loving something. And, yeah. and I think we get more out of loving than being loved. Um, and I think that's what an animal can, can provide, um, especially in that setting. So it's, it's unfortunate that is, that there is a lot of liability or red tape around what you were trying to achieve, because I think that could be really meaningful. Yeah. So I just want to look back over this conversation and think We've spent roughly an hour and 15 minutes thinking about the self and connectivity with others. Is there any sort of, not to make it all grandiose, like a lesson or anything that has come to mind, but how do you feel about thinking back about your life in this way? In what way? In the stories that you've told, in the community, the interconnectedness, the spirituality, all the sort of topics we've talked about, anything come to mind that might synthesize all of it? Well, I like to say that I like to follow the rules, meaning life rules, like seize the day. Don't, don't take things for granted. I mean, I follow the basic rules, like go to college, don't get married until you're older, don't have a baby until you're stable, you know, or you, until you're financially stable. Like, I feel like I followed all those life rules. But then I also follow the rules of what everybody tells you that they've learned through their lessons, right? Like, take that trip, spend your money on experiences, not material goods. So I'm like, okay, I do that. Because I've, I've learned from what others are, are saying, the life rules. Seize the day, go on that trip, call your parents, do this. I try to follow those rules. And I also feel that I think good things can happen to me, but I also think bad things can happen to me. And so I prepare for those bad things. And then I look for the good things. And I fully expect that they're, that they're going to happen. So I don't know, I guess, you know, if, I, if I'm trying to tie this up, I, I feel like I, I am following life's messages that we get and, and not think that they don't apply to me or that they don't apply today. Like, hey, help that stranger. That applies today. It's not for when it's convenient or for when it's, but it applies today. So I don't know if that, if that helps kind of wrap this up, but, um, you know, I think of some of the difficult decisions we've, what, what one would consider difficult decision, like say pulling our kids out of private school and putting them into a private, a public school. And to me, I was like, well, that's, an, that's a no brainer. Let's do it. I mean, making what, what some people would consider difficult decisions to me are like, yeah, that's a no brainer. Let's just do that because we are going to be more financially secure, which is going to make us happier. So why, why delay the decision? Let's just do it. Um, and, and that goes back to, again, that courage of knowing yourself, being comfortable with who you are and making quote unquote difficult decisions that you can be comfortable with because you have the courage to do that. And I'm going off on a little tangent. So, well, that was pointless. Yeah. No, come on. Remember what did I, I say yesterday? Just, I think we just go back to, <laughs> back to follow the rule, follow the, 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 the rules that people tell you, you know, I think they work. Oh, you're so funny. No, but you remember I said yesterday that we've never, ever in the 25 years of whatever. Oh, had a pointless conversation. Yeah. <laughs> like, like this conversation <laughs> is so us. Like this is the kind of conversation we have all the time. 
Exactly. Yeah. All of our conversations are always like this, which is why when I said I'm starting a podcast, you said, finally. Yeah. You're so that was your this. one word you're reply. You're so good at this, Lauren. Yeah. You think so? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're my best cheerleader. You're a good listener and you ask good questions, thoughtful, interesting questions. You know, that's the thing with a book group. Sometimes we would have people who wanted just to hear other people talk and not really say too much. And you have to navigate the, how do I draw them out without putting them on the spot? Whereas if someone signs up to be on a podcast, they're kind of saying, all right, fire away. Yeah. I had one person who replied, are they going to be softballs or what kind of questions? And I was like, you'll get a couple of softballs, but not many. Well, and I think going back to the example about the book club, if you're going to be in a book club, we want you to participate or else you're just a taker, not a giver. You're not contributing. The book club is all about contributing insights and, and perspective. And if you're just sitting there taking it all in, you're not contributing to, 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 to the pot. And I think that's what you were like, Hey, you don't get a free ride. Well, I, that's part of it, but it's also, I want to know what's going on in that head of yours. Yeah. You know? Which is what makes you interesting, that you actually want to understand how people tick. Why do yeah. they do what they do? Why do they think what they think? Really, you think that way. That's, you like to dissect people, and I think that's how you learn. That's your personal growth. That's how you're learning about human behavior, and, and right. that's what makes you better. And then you, And then you share all that knowledge with the rest of us. And, you know, as a person who has run, and it still is running a book group and hopefully can go back to selling books when this is all over, which I don't know if that will happen, but anyway, we'll see. The number one thing that drives me nuts is to say, you know, well, what'd you think of that book? And someone will say, well, I liked it or I didn't like it. And I say, why? And they go, I don't know. Yeah. I just did it. Right. Oh, or I liked it. You know, like, come on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No introspection, yeah. no deep thinking, no, yeah. Right. And I, I still, I've been doing this since, what, 1998, we decided. I have not learned yet. What do you do with a person like that? How do you draw them out? How do you get them to realize there's got to be more going on in that head of yours and somehow bring it out? And I have not learned that yet. Yeah. You know, and maybe it's not fair for me to say no introspection, no deep thinking. I think sometimes people have a difficult time formulating the thoughts they have verbally, right? I mean, I, I wish I could speak as eloquently as, as you do, you know, as you express yourself. And sometimes I can't get the thoughts out of my head in the proper way. So maybe these individuals have a hard time doing that, you know? Um, so I guess I, I shouldn't be as judgmental as I am because I'm very judgmental. But you know, you're almost always right. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) So we will end with this. If anyone hears this podcast and realizes that they're that kind of person that we're talking about that has a hard time, I definitely want you to be on here so that we can figure out Mm -hmm. how to talk to you, how to draw that out, how to engage you, how to help that disconnect between the brain and the tongue, maybe. Well, and I think it takes practice. It it actually takes practice. You've got to learn, you've got to train your brain. Yes. Yeah. I think you just brought up one of the themes that I've been learning in 2020 is retraining your brain, how to develop new synaptic things going on in there to, to come to different conclusions, to see things differently. Introspection is intentional. It doesn't just 
I think introspection is intentional. You have to sit down and really think, why, why do I do this? Why do I like this? Why don't I like this? And then you go to the next level. Why, why you ask at least five different whys and you're going to get pretty, some pretty interesting perspectives. I agree. And that makes me think that you should be the person always around three-year-olds who are saying, why, why, why? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I don't have the patience for that. <laughs> or I'm going to tell them things their parents don't want to hear. Yeah. Like the truth. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Well, my friend of many contradictions, it was a lovely spending this time with you. Thank you so much, Lauren. This was really, really a, a privilege to be on your podcast and I'm so proud of you. Aw. No, thank you. You've been a wonderful guest and I truly appreciate it. Thanks again. Well, that was my interview with uh, Laura Mavartian-Rim. And uh, for my second one, I thought it went pretty darn well. Just want to give you a little how the sausage gets made view into this. I am doing all of my own editing, so it takes a long time. And I'm learning a lot. And I'm learning what not to do when discussing things with people. But man, there is nothing more humbling than hearing yourself talk. And then hearing someone who's so accomplished and so smart and so well-spoken tell you that you are doing a great job and that you are well-spoken and that person is so freaking humbling and not just humbling, but humble. She's so humble and practical and thoughtful that it's just, ooh, it's a bit of an oof right to the gut sometimes that, um, you know how they say that with teaching, that the teachers learn all the time from the students? Well, this has been definitely a learning experience for me. I'm learning a lot, not just the technology, but about myself and about my friends, which is lovely. And Laura is lovely. So thanks for listening. And if you want to know more about her, I've got some links on the website. So you can go check her out and maybe even contribute to her uh, nonprofit, the Fiesta de Libros. So thanks and see you next week. Mm -hmm.